This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this uh, evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9, if necessary, to gather your thoughts, focus your concentration, and get ready to get into some serious exegesis of the Word. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful that we have this opportunity to gather together to worship you through the study and teaching of your word. We are reminded that the highest form of worship is to learn your word and to apply it in our lives. Father, we thank you for the freedom that we have in this nation to gather together to study your word, that you continue to provide a place for us to meet as well in this uh, Baptist church. Father, we pray that you would continue to guide and direct us as we seek a more permanent location, and that you would provide that which is necessary to make that happen. Father, we pray tonight that as we study your word, we would be able to put aside the cares and distractions of the week ahead or the week behind, that we may be able to focus our attention on your word, and that we would be responsive to God the Holy Spirit as he teaches us and challenges us with the doctrines we study. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Revelation 2. Revelation 2, we are working our way through the initial part of this. Got the wrong slideshow up there. There we go. First part of this letter to the church at Ephesus. We're reminded that there's several parts to each one of these letters. They each follow the same pattern. There's a commission... Uh, reference to the character of Jesus Christ and a commendation, a condemnation, then a call, then a charge, and a closing. So the commission was in Revelation 2, verse 1. And as we go through this, you'll note there's a little difference. I've corrected or expanded the translation, so you'll get that as we work through this. Revelation 2, 1, to the angel, that is the officer of the court, the heavenly court, of the church in Ephesus. It is the role of this angel to record the outworking of these letters in the life of each one of these churches and to either carry out the uh, blessing that would come from the Supreme Court of Heaven or the disciplinary action that would come forth from the Supreme Court of Heaven. To the angel or officer of the court of the church in Ephesus write, 
These things says he. Now, the second part of the first verse it re- references the character of Christ. These things says he, and two things are, are highlighted. First of all, he is the one who has the authority over the seven stars in his right hand. He has authority over all of the angels in light of the fact that Jesus Christ at the ascension was elevated over all of the angels, a doctrine we will study in depth on Thursday nights as we go through the first chapter of Hebrews. He has been elevated over the angels. Second point, he walks in the midst of the seven lampstands of gold. These represent the seven churches. The seven lampstands represent the churches in their function as light to the world. Represent the churches as their, in their function as light to the world, which emphasizes both the uh, fact that the believers would operate as salt and light, salt in the operating in the in their invisible hero ship, and then light in terms of evangelism and missionary activity. Uh, the fact that Christ is walking in the midst of the seven lampstands shows that he is involved in judging and evaluating the churches in an ongoing basis. So this <clears throat> we reference to the doctrine of the corporate testimony of a local church. It's not simply the individuals within the church, but also the overall uh, congregation serves as a witness or testimony in the angelic conflict. Then verse 2 begins the commendation or praise section where Jesus Christ outlines the positive uh, areas of spiritual growth and advance in the congregation. And there are several. This is generally a positive report for the church of Ephesus. There's only one negative mentioned, and uh, sometimes folks focus on the negative, but this is a positive report. He summarizes, as he does in each of these, I know your works, that is the production. First of all, your labor and endurance. He has three couplets here, three groupings, two each. First of all, your labor and endurance. They were a hard-working Church. They were involved in, uh, in ministry that was many times laborious, just as the Apostle Paul's ministry was laborious. Uh, and this involved many different ways, whether it involves a Sunday school teacher, missionaries, whether it involves secretarial work, people, if you have a building, people are in charge of the building. Many times these things involve just a lot of work. So this is part of spiritual service and endurance, that is, that despite opposition, Despite problems, testing in the spiritual life, they hung in there. They consistently applied the word. The second couplet, that you cannot bear those who are evil, that is, you can't put up with those who are promoting religion in the congregation. And secondly, you have examined those who claim to be apostles and are not, and have found them liars. This was very positive. They had a solid doctrinal orientation in this congregation. And then third, in Revelation 2.3, you have endured and hung in there because of my name, that is, because of who I am, and are not worn out. So this all exemplifies the fact that this congregation may not be a mature congregation, but they have clearly made it beyond just spiritual infancy as a congregation as a whole, and they were being praised for having mastered fundamental basic spiritual skills. However, verse indicates that they have failed to uh, master the more mature spiritual skills or 
more likely, having mastered them, they had gone into a period of spiritual regression. Because the Lord says, but I have against you that you have left your priority love or your mature love. We could translate it that way, although the word there, first love, indicates uh, more important or priority. It's not uh, first in terms of time, but it's first in terms of priority or importance. And last time, I pointed out that the way to interpret this is to go back to Ephesians and see what Paul said to the church at Ephesus about love. And he had praised them because they were known, they had a reputation for their love for all the saints. So that we tie to Jesus' command in John 13, 34, and 35, that we are to love one another as he loved us, and that it is by this example that all men would know that we are disciples or, that is, students of the gospel, that we're applying it and grown to a measure of maturity. Now, every Christian can exhibit some level of love, personal love for God or impersonal love for all mankind. It's just that it's going to differ from spiritual maturity level to spiritual maturity level. So if you're a spiritual infant, it will have the characteristics of a young child's love. A young child of four or five can have a measure of love for his parents. It's not the same as an adult's love for his parents. So it lacks those elements of maturity, but it's still a measure of love. So they had mastered at certain spiritual skill levels that, that immature love, but they had failed to hit that priority mature love. Or if they had been there, which is what the next verse indicates, that they had been there, they had at one time exhibited a certain level of maturity, they had fallen away from it. They had regressed spiritually. And so the challenge that's being presented to them is they need to get back to where they once were in terms of living the spiritual life. This is the correction given in verse 5. This is where our exegesis begins this evening. Revelation 2.5 reads, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, and repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly. And if you're using a New American Standard or an NIV or one of the uh, modern translations other than King James or New King James, you won't have that adverb in there. It should be there. It's in the majority of documents, and I think the evidence is strong that that word should be there. So it should read, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Now, we have to obviously do some analysis on this Verse. Otherwise, you could easily misinterpret this and come up with some kind of screwball understanding. But this is the focus, is recovery. And recovery here isn't simply confess your sins, but confession may get you back in fellowship. But getting back in fellowship isn't the end result. You know, the goal isn't to just get in fellowship. The goal is to stay in fellowship. The goal is not to get uh, back, uh, to recover the filling of the Holy Spirit, but to maintain the filling of the Holy Spirit under the uh, imperative in Galatians 5.16 to walk by means of the Spirit. So we're to abide in Christ, John chapter 15. 
We're to walk by means of the Spirit, Galatians uh, 5, 16 and following. So confession, 1 John 1, 9, simply gives us that opportunity to recover, but the focus is to recover for a purpose. The focus is to recover in order to stay in fellowship, to walk by the Spirit, abide in Christ, so that we can have that time in fellowship so the Holy Spirit can work in our life in terms of sanctification, producing maturity. But then what if you sin? Well, then you just confess it, admit it, move on, and stay in fellowship. So the idea isn't just to bounce in and out like, a, like you're some sort of ping-pong ball, which is characteristic of an immature believer. We all went through that stage, and we can remember those days. And sometimes now as we mature a little into faith, we're a little more sensitive to what some sins are, and we think we still just bounce in and out all the time. But, but nevertheless, the idea is to stay in fellowship. Now, they have fallen by the wayside in terms of their application. That seems to be the thrust here. They are commended for a number of things which shows that they are advancing at some level or applying the truth. They're not in apostasy like several of these congregations are. They haven't just compromised completely with the cosmic system around them. But they have, in some sense, lost that passion of priority that they once had in their spiritual growth. So the first command here is to remember to remember where they had been in their spiritual life. This is the Greek verb, mnemonuo. Mnemonuo, where we get our English word mnemonics, which has to do with memory, uh, is a present active imperative. Now, there are three imperatives in this verse, and they link together. We'll see that in a minute. The first one is a present active imperative. The next two, which are repent and do, are aorist active imperatives. And the way to remember the difference, a present imperative, I just got through teaching basic Greek out in California to uh, some, a bunch of black pastors out there. So whenever I come back, I'm always a little more, uh, get a little more into the syntax. But the present imperative emphasizes something that should be a characteristic standard operating procedure in the Christian life. The idea, you know, we think of tense. Just a little grammar lesson here. In English, we think of tense as time of action because that's the primary element in tense in English. But in Greek, you have two elements. You have the time of action and the kind of action. Time would be either the present time, future time, or past time. But kind of action represents ongoing action, a summary of the action, or completed action, which would be the perfect tense. So when you get out of the indicative mood, time is irrelevant. It doesn't work at all. The funny thing is when you get into Greek, time has nothing to do with tense. In, I mean, in Hebrew, time has nothing to do with tense. It's all kind of action. So you have to infer from the context what the timing is. So here you have a present imperative, and this indicates something that should be a standard procedure in the life of a believer. We need to remember certain things. And what's a fascinating study, which I didn't want to get into this evening, is a study of the importance of memory and remembering in the Old Testament. And there were many different admonitions in the Old Testament to remember certain things. For example, when the uh, armies of Israel under Joshua entered into the land and they crossed the, red, uh, the um, 
Jordan. And the Jordan parted and they crossed on dry land just as they had crossed the Reed Sea on dry land. When they came across into the promised land, they were told to, uh, to uh, erect a cairn of 12 stones, one stone for each of the 12 tribes. And why was that? So that when your children and your grandchildren come along and see that pile of rocks, they'll say, Daddy, what's that pile of rocks doing there? And then that will be a teaching moment for you as a parent to teach doctrine to your children. So you establish memorials in the life of Israel. And there were these, these hooks, these memorial hooks throughout the history of Israel where God would call them back to these things that happened historically. So we don't have that appreciation for history in our modern world because modern man doesn't understand that there is a purpose and meaning and direction to history and that history is the outworking of the plan of God in time. And so history is important. History is crucial. And for the believer, history has a purpose and a meaning and a significance that goes far beyond anything that an unbeliever can appreciate. Because as we look at history, we have a, we have a book here that gives us everything we need to know so that we can properly interpret what went on in history and indeed what may be going on even in contemporary times. So this focuses on memory, to remember what the Lord did. The Lord doesn't need to repeat His actions in every generation. That's why, why we don't need to continuously have signs and wonders and miracles like they had in the early church. You don't need to have a miracle today because it happened once, and we have eyewitness accounts of those miracles. We don't need to see the Messiah come in every generation. The Messiah came once, and we have over 500 uh, eyewitnesses of the resurrection. So the resurrection need only occur once in history, and it's just as valid for every generation after that as it was for that generation. You don't need to have it repeated over and over and over again. Only when you come at history from a pagan viewpoint do you have to have these things repeated over and over and over again because you don't understand the purpose. This is just one of many flaws in the, in the charismatic approach to things is they want everything to continue like it did in the first, first generation. And at the root it shows a failure to understand a biblical viewpoint of history. But history is important, not only history in the broad sense, but history in terms of your life. What has the Lord done in your life? Can you look back on your life and remember certain key points in terms of your spiritual growth, certain uh, maybe answers to prayer where you recognized in, in, a, in a way more, perhaps a little more real to you than at other times, where God had specifically answered a prayer and it just gave you a renewed confidence in the power of prayer and in God's working in your life. Or perhaps there was some crisis that you went through, and as you continuously claimed those promises and just clung to the grace of God, you realized how true and accurate those promises were and how God sustained you. Well, those are those memorials that we plant down Throughout our life, I can remember a number of different things that happened. I think some of these things happen more when we're young believers than they do when we're matured. At least that's my experiential doctrine. 
that um, when we're young babies, we sometimes need a little extra encouragement from the Lord, and so he does these things. And I can remember certain answers to prayer that God gave back when I was a young believer in college and after college. And I just think, wow, God really exists. He really answers prayer. This is, this is incredible. And there's such a, they, they just really strengthen your confidence in, uh, in the Word and in God's work in your life. So this is what the Lord is emphasizing here to the Ephesian believers. Remember something. Focus on something. Concentrate on something. Bring something to memory. And you should do this on a regular basis as a reminder of where you've been and where you're going in your own spiritual life. It's the idea of taking a personal spiritual assessment every now and then just to make sure you're not taking grace for granted, just that you're not taking doctrine for granted and you're actually going somewhere in your spiritual life. So he says to them, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Now this is an interesting phrase, from where you have fallen. The word translated from where is an, is an adverb that expresses a, in this case, a previous position or status. They had come from a certain position. They had apparently achieved a measure of spiritual adulthood at some point. And this was a high watermark in their spiritual growth. But for whatever reason, they had fallen from that. They had begun to take things for granted, or they became uh, more concerned in heresy hunting, perhaps, finding and identifying false claims of apostles. Whatever it may be, they had fallen away from a reputation where they were known for their love for all the saints to a position now where that was not as characteristic of them. Their personal love for God was not what it had once been, their impersonal love for all mankind was not what it had once been, and their testimony in the angelic conflict was consequently tarnished. So the adverb here identifies their previous status. And then we have a verb that's translated have fallen. Now, actually, it's a little difficult to translate this right into the English. This is about as as good as we can get it. The word in the Greek is pipto. It's a perfect active indicative. Second person singular. So even though he's addressing a congregation which has a large number of people in it, continuously uses second person singulars to address the, the collective whole as a single unit. So this re-emphasizes, reinforces the idea of a corporate testimony. The perfect active indicative indicates completed action. That means they have completed the action of falling from their previous status. Uh, perfect tense always emphasizes the present results of a completed past action. So in this case, with a perfect active indicative, it's emphasizing the present status, the adverb emphasize the previous status. The perfect tense emphasizes the present status of a past action, and that past action is their regression in their spiritual growth. They have fallen 
from a position of spiritual maturity to one of less maturity. So the first thing they're commanded to do is to remember, take a little spiritual inventory and make sure you're going in the right direction. For them, Christ is saying, remember where you fell from. Look back and you'll see that there's been a regression. And then the corrective is given to repent. And this is a word that certainly confuses a lot of people, just one of those words that's used and overused out of the Bible so much that people think they know what it means and they don't know what it means. And this last week I had a great example of this. When I showed up in in Los Angeles on uh, Monday at noon, or or actually it was before that, it was about 9.30 in the morning, I was ready to get in my room and and go to sleep, but there was a lot of noise in the hotel. We were staying at large LAX Hilton, and the noise was emanating from 1,300 teenagers. No, I think it was 1,500 teenagers were in the hotel. And they were with a, uh, a Jewish youth organization. So we had a mission field of 1,500 teenagers. I don't know if anybody got witness to, but um, I saw this one girl, and I kept looking at this T-shirt she had on, and it said, what is it, the uh, six levels, is that what it is, six levels of, the, in English we say, we say six levels of separation, Right? Well, six degrees of separation, that's what it is. Six degrees of, and then it was in Hebrew. And I looked at that, and I looked at the word. Well, that's really an interesting illustration. See, the Hebrew, word, the Hebrew word that was there was the word that was related to holiness. See, when you use that English word holy, everybody gets the idea this is moral purity and being very good and, and not having any sin in your life. And, but that's not the main idea of the Hebrew word kadosh. The main idea of the Hebrew word kadosh is to be separated in some one way or another. And for the believer, that's means separated to the service of God. So what she had on her shirt was six degrees of separation. Now, this is a great illustration to understand this word that in English we perverted and misused so many times that Christians use it over and over again. They have no idea what it means. Well, repent's the same thing. People use it over and over again. And they think it means to feel sorry for your sin. They think it means to have remorse or to feel guilty or somehow do penance. That's uh, the English word penance derives from the same root as the English repent. It's that second syllable of repent, P-E-N. That root comes from a Latin word. So we have to always define what repentance means when you get into uh, Russia, when I go over to, to Ukraine or Russia, you always have to stop and spend a lot of time explaining this because the word, the Russian word that is used to translate repent is the word for remorse. So their Bible actually says to have remorse. And this just gets everybody into, into works and religion and, and trying to work up some sort of, of uh, guilt every time they sin to somehow impress God. And I think that in my own understanding, because there are times when you do commit sins, now the older you get and the more you get used to your own sin nature, the less shocking sometimes your sins are. And so as you, when you're young and you're a little more idealistic and you're really trying hard to, to apply the word and you commit some sins, you just shock yourself. 
And you just, uh, you go to the Lord and you say, you know, part of it is you don't want to go through the discipline and part of it is you, you're, you're really embarrassed you did that and you just plead with God to, to, uh, to, to forgive you because you don't understand how you can forgive yourself. And we've all gone through those, those emotions at times. And, uh, but as time goes by, we don't shock ourselves quite so much. And, and we know that, yeah, well, there I go. I just committed that same sin again. And we, we don't have that, that same reaction. And it's not that we're becoming calloused to the sin. In some cases, we're just becoming a little more realistic. But we, we can't get into this trap of trying to somehow artificially generate these emotions that were there genuinely the very first time you commit the sin. And so there may be emotion there. I mean, it's just fine to feel sorry that you committed some sin. That's not what gets approval with God. But sometimes we really are, just like you commit any action, you know, oh, gee, why did I do that? You're genuinely sorry you did it. But that's not the point. The point is in confession of admitting or acknowledging your sin. And one day I realized that, that um, I don't know what it was, I'd lost my temper or something, and I thought, God, and you know, when am I ever going to get control of this and, and just have a modicum of patience in my life? And I realized, you know, I'm trying to tell the Lord I'm just not going to do that again. And the Lord's omniscient. He knows I'm going to do it 25,000 more times. So who am I impressing? And once we realize the omniscience of God in terms of our sin, we realize that the Lord paid for every sin on the cross. The omniscience of God knew every one of those sins. And the omniscience of God took care of it at the cross. And so the issue isn't, isn't how we feel about the sin. It's not remorse. It is a change. That's the ultimate goal. Confession gets us back in fellowship, but confession actually isn't the end point. There is this challenge here, not just simply to get back in fellowship, but to change your thinking about something. And that's what repentance means. It's not the Greek word metamelomai. It's the Greek word metanoeo, which means to change your thinking. It's a compound word from the preposition meta, meaning after, and noeo, which has to do with thought or thinking or the mind. As an aorist active imperative, it means this is a priority. An aorist tense is summary action, so it's like pounding something. It's punching it home. It's putting that command in boldface. The, the general idea is continuously in the Christian life, remember, and as part of that process, there are times when you need to change. Change your thinking according to doctrine. Quit thinking like the world. Quit compromising with the world. Quit the sin or whatever it may be and change. And here Jesus says to change and do the first works. Now, here's an important question to answer when you're doing the exegesis here. Does he mean first in time or first in priority? First in time or first in priority. When we were discussing the previous verse in verse 4, which is where they're told that they have left their first love, I said that first was a first in priority or importance, meaning a mature love, not a first in time. But this first is not a first in priority but a first in time. And the reason you know that is because contextually it was preceded by a, this adverb, pothin, from, from where you have fallen. You're remembering a previous state and being told to go back to that previous state. 
So it involves time. You're going back to a former production level, one that was higher. So that's the idea, is repent, that is change your thinking. And then the next command is poieo, to do or perform the first works. That is that production that you had formerly at the former level of spiritual maturity. Now let's get a, an expanded translation at this point. Therefore, remember the former spiritual status from where you are now fallen. That emphasizes that present result of that perfect tense verb. Change your thinking and get back to your previous spiritual life priorities. That's the idea of production there. Get back to your previous spiritual life priorities and perform in that area of production. That's where they're being challenged. The word that's translated do the first works, the word translated do is poeo, which means to do work or perform. So they're being challenged to get with it again. They have become complacent and they have regressed spiritually. You know, you don't have to plunge into rank carnality to regress spiritually. Spiritual life is somewhat akin to trying to drive a car up a hill. You only have one, you only have two gears, forward and neutral. And what happens when you slip into neutral and you're driving up a hill is you go backward. And that's what happens in the spiritual life. You get complacent, you slip into neutral, you will regress, you will lose ground. And the next thing you know, you're having to go through some serious recovery. Now, there is a contrast here. There's a warning that comes up in the middle of this verse. They're told to do three things. Remember, repent, and do the first works. Or else. Uh Uh-oh. Remember when your mother told you that? Or else. Well, this is a Greek idiom. Literally, it means, but if not. That is, but if you don't do this. And we would translate that in, in, in the English idiom, or else. I will come to you quickly. And here there is a, uh, it's an interesting combination of verbs here. I will come is actually the present active indicative of erikomai, meaning to come or to go. And as a, as a present active, as a present tense, it really has a future orientation, and that's clear from the next verb, which is a future tense. I will come to you quickly. And that word that I've underlined quickly is that word I emphasized or stated earlier, wasn't in the modern translations. You know, they, most of the modern translations follow a theory of textual criticism, which I don't agree with, and it grew out of some, the, some developments in the late 19th century that the oldest manuscript was the best. And so if any number of four manuscripts agree, then that's what, in, in a lot of modern textual criticism, that's what they go with. If you get these four manuscripts out of North Africa and they all agree, then that's what the Word of God was. It doesn't matter if you've got 2,500 manuscripts over here that don't have that word or have have a different word. We're going to go with what those four say. And I disagree with that. I think there's a number of problems with that whole viewpoint. And the word that's used there is this word, takus, or takus. It's an adverb, so it modifies a verb, basic little point of grammar. Adverbs modify verbs, so it's saying how Jesus will come. Now, the problem with this word, I don't know if you remember this, uh, there's a form of it earlier in 
in uh, Revelation 1 where Jesus warns that, that he is uh, uh, coming quickly. The idea here could be one of two things. First of all, takus could mean suddenly or unexpectedly. I'm going to come, and the way in which I come, the manner in which I come will be quick. It will be swift. It will be sudden. Or it could have the idea of soon. Now, the King James translation, I think, did us an injustice here because often it translates it, I will come to you soon. Well, it's been 2,000 years. Jesus didn't come soon in the first generation. He didn't come in the second generation, third generation, on down to the 20th century. It doesn't mean quickly in the sense of soon or in time. It's the idea of when I come, I will come suddenly and unexpectedly. This word is used seven times in Revelation, and it is used in contexts of judgments. It's also used that same way back in Deuteronomy. Uh, two or three times when the Septuagint translated the Old Testament, when God warned the Jews of judgment in terms of the five cycles of discipline, God said, if you are disobedient, I will come quickly. And the trans- Jewish translators translated it with a form of this adverb, uh, takus, meaning that it would be suddenly indicating that as, and the idea is that man gets so caught up in his own sin and his own carnality that we become blinded to God. We forget God's going to get involved in the, and that uh, the discipline's going to come. And so despite all the warning signs, we get knocked upside the head by God's discipline in an unexpected way. And so when Jesus says to the church at Ephesus that if you don't, apply these principles in the first part of the verse, I will come to you suddenly and unexpectedly. And the implication is that this will be in judgment. This will be in uh, divine discipline on the congregation. I will come to you suddenly and remove your lampstand from its place. And this is the future active indicative of kineo where we get our, our, our word kinetic, indicating movement or removing something. This is the uh, Greek root for that. Uh, probably movies as well. Uh, cinemascope is from that same root, K-I-N-O, meaning to move something, to cause something to be moved from its established place or to remove it. So the warning of discipline is that the Lord will come suddenly and remove their lampstand. In other words, end the testimony of the church. They will be under divine discipline. Now, a question that comes to my mind anyway when I get to this point, and I ask that, is how in the world did this happen historically? Because you see, as you go through and you think about divine discipline and think of churches, you look around, at least let's look at the modern American uh, ecclesiastical scene, there's a whole host of churches out there who have compromised in much more profound manner than the Ephesian congregation. I mean, look at the impact of 19th century liberalism 
on most of the major denominations in this country, and most of them now are, are validating women preachers and, and same-sex marriages, and some of them are ordaining uh, practicing sodomites as their uh, bishops, and the Lord doesn't seem to be removing these churches. It's called grace before judgment. And you see the same thing with the church at Ephesus. That there was a period of grace before judgment. This warning was given in 95, and the sudden first, at least the first sudden judgment, didn't come for about 60 years after the emperors Marcus Aurelius and Verus had had victory over the Parthians. When the soldiers in the Roman army came back and they came through. Uh, Asia, and they came to the port at Ephesus, they brought something with them. Soldiers bring all kinds of germs with them, it seems, and they brought the plague with them. And the plague was extremely virulent and ripped through Ephesus and, and killed a large amount of that population. It was sudden. It was unexpected. And there were a couple of these that uh, even though that didn't wipe out Ephesus completely, they never held the same place in history. They did have one more shining moment in the 5th century when there was a church council held in Ephesus, but the, the congregation or the church there never had the impact it once had. Uh, after the plague the, in the next century, early 3rd century, the Ostrogoths invaded and destroyed the temple to Artemis. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and they basically destroyed it down to the point where they almost wiped the bedrock clean with it so that there was, there was nothing left. Between the 4th and 7th centuries, there were a series of earthquakes. The one that occurred in the 4th century pretty much sent uh, whoever was left among the inhabitants scurrying for cover, and that was pretty much the end of, of significant inhabitation in Ephesus, but its final desertion didn't come until about the uh, 8th or 9th century. But there was a series of major earthquakes from the 4th to the 7th century. And as I think about plagues and invasion and earthquakes, I think about sudden and unexpected. These were God's judgments. It's interesting, you don't have those same factors with the other churches, but... Neither do you have this kind of a warning that if you don't straighten up, I'm going to come suddenly. That, that, that is only said of the Ephesian church. So there is this warning of divine discipline and God's judgment. Now, if we think about, if we think about God's discipline, even if it's at a personal level in our own life, or if it's at a larger level related to a congregation, related to... A, a nation, national entity, what is our response to that? What does this signify? When God is disciplining people, it shows that God is intervening in history. And in one sense, depending on how you look at it, God is interfering in history. And this is something that man in carnality and fallen man, rebellious man, resents, is that God is a God who interferes with, he's involved in history. This is just the opposite of the viewpoint of the deists, that God just sort of wound up the universe like a clock and 
tossed it out there into the into space, and he's off doing something else and no longer involved in the day-to-day uh, running of the universe. Well, this demonstrates just the opposite, that God is involved in watching, that Jesus Christ is involved in the day-to-day affairs of the local church. He continuously moves within the context of the local church, and he is involved in, uh, in, in discipline. He's intervening personally in history. Now, we come to a con- the last statement here as, as a repetition of the previous command. I will come and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. That is, unless you change your mind. It's repeated twice, so that's the point. It's not just get back in fellowship. It's get back in fellowship, straighten up, and move forward. Recover spiritually from where you previously fell. So the conclusion would be translated, or else I will come to you suddenly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you change your thinking, and that is, unless you change your thinking about your own spiritual growth. Now, having gone through the verse, exegeted it, looked at the, the thrust of this, I want to stop a little bit and talk about God's interference in our lives in terms of of history in terms of divine discipline. I got to thinking about this today in, in a broader context, that God gets involved in history, gets involved in our lives. God is, a, God is a God who is not isolated from us. He's not some absentee landlord just sitting out there, but he is intimately involved in the day-to-day affairs of man. Not just the local church, but he is intimately involved in history, Jesus Christ controls history. Jesus Christ is moving history in a particular direction. And I got to thinking again that that one of the greatest weaknesses among most Christians and most Americans is our understanding and appreciation of history. History is the outworking of God's plan. And if history is the outworking of God's plan, then in terms of various academic disciplines and study, there's nothing really more important to understand than history. Now, I remember years ago when I was working on my, on my doctorate at Dallas Seminary, I was working in the area of church history. I found that a study of church history really helped, under, helped you with understanding doctrine because what you see in history is the outworking of theological positions. It's one thing for somebody in one generation to take a theological position like like uh, John Calvin took a certain position on the perseverance of the saints in the latter editions of his uh, Institutes of the Christian Religion, that if you were a true believer, your life would indicate consistent obedience and perseverance, and so you could know that you were saved by looking at your life. And that's the origin of the doctrine of fruit inspection. We're all going to be a lot of fruit inspectors. Assurance isn't based on the promise of God. Assurance is based on having certain qualities or fruits in our own life. Well, that had tremendous implications. It might not sound so bad the way Calvin articulated it, but let's see how it worked itself out in the churches that come from his influence, the Reformed churches, Presbyterian churches, Congregational churches, how it worked itself out in Reformed theology. And you can see this all the way down to the present 
time in the current manifestation of the debate in the Lordship Free Grace debate. So when you study doctrines historically, it gives you a greater appreciation of the strengths and weaknesses and flaws and failures in certain doctrines. It also uh, gives you a better understanding uh, and appreciation for what's going on in your own time, how to objectively evaluate what's happening today. So human history is, is crucial to study. But when you study history, everybody's got a different view of history out there. You can, you can come up with about 20 or 30 different historical philosophies. Some of the most prominent ones you might find in Eastern Asia, and you found them in ancient Greece as well. And that was the idea of that history is just cyclical there. There are certain patterns, and this is popularized under the slogan that history repeats itself. And you just thought that meant something else, that there were certain patterns that you could observe. And actually what it means is history repeats itself. It's cyclical. But see, Christian, a Christian view of history says that history is moving in a straight line towards an ultimate resolution in the millennial kingdom and the second coming of Christ. In other words, history goes somewhere. Now, if history is going somewhere, what moves it along its path? In other words, the next major question you have to ask when you analyze a, uh, someone's view of history is what are the causative factors here? What causes things to change? Now, you have all kinds of views. If you have a Marxist view of history, then, of course, it's the you use a Hegelian perspective and you have the... the uh, uh, thesis and the antithesis and the synthesis, so you have the, the, the workers, and then they're going to revolt against the, the um, uh, rich, rich bourgeoisie, and then you're going to end up with some kind of synthesis, which was communism, and we're going to have a worker's paradise, and of course that all fell apart. But that's the basic idea of Marxism, though Marxism is often called a Christian heresy because, see, Marxism had a linear view of history. You can't get a linear view of history unless you steal it from the Bible. So Marx is borrowing certain biblical truth, and, and, and the devil always uses a lot of truth in his systems because that makes it palatable and it makes it look as if the system works. But you have this, the first thing you want to ask when you think about history is where is it going? The Greeks had a cyclical view. Buddhists, Hindus all have a cyclical view. You know, you go through that karmic cycle over and over again until finally you're released into, the, into nirvana and lose your identity. So there's no real causation there because it's, it's not directional. But in, in uh, Christianity, you have this movement in a direction. So you ask the question, what are the causes? And when we look at that, we say, well, what are the causes? Uh, everybody has some kind of causation. In Marxism, the causation is economic. You've got other systems of history where the, 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 the ultimate causation is military. Ultimate causation is, is opening new ports. It's trade. Ultimate causation is any number of factors. But they're all factors that come in within creation. Now, I made a chart of this. Let me skip past that. Well, I want to skip ahead a minute. I got these out of order. We'll skip to the next slide. Something like this. Here's God. Eternal God, the eternal triune God of the universe. So I have him pictured by a triangle for the Trinity with a theta in the middle for theos. This is God. God has 
created all of creation, the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. All that is in them. That means all of the laws, economic laws, political laws, social laws, everything that operates within creation was created and instituted by God. And so that's all defined by this circle. It's all inside the circle. So history takes place inside that circle. But history is ultimately controlled by God. History, though, and your philosophy of history really undergirds almost everything else. There's a lot of things and details of, of life that we could, we could talk about, we could think about. You've got uh, philosophy, you've got literature, you've got the, the visual arts, performing arts, you have the sciences, you have uh, technology, you have law, politics. Uh, these are all part of society. But they're all ultimately informed by philosophy. And see, philosophy is one of those things that, and I can understand it being a philosophy major, that most people don't get into because if you go, to, if you go down here to Rice or to U of H or to most secular universities, philosophy doesn't start until about 1789 with the publication of Kant's Critique of Pure Reason. They may give lip service to Plato and Aristotle, but they just leap over the entire Middle Ages. And the Middle Ages are irrelevant because whatever philosophy was done there was done within a biblical theistic framework. Now, it may have been Roman Catholic. It may have had various compromises with Aristotle and Plato, and I, I grant you that. But ultimately, what they were trying to do was to understand creation and all of these areas philosophically within a biblical framework. So modern man rejects that as just a waste of time. And the result is that if you reject God in any sort of external revelation to inform what's going on inside the circle, then it just becomes a collection of meaningless data. And I hated taking modern philosophy because these guys are just, it's like a bunch of blind leading the blind, and they don't have a clue, and they're trying to, you know, the typical illustration, there's of an elephant, and you have seven blindfolded men, and they're each trying to describe the elephant. One person's got his hands on the trunk, and he says, well, it's long and it's like a snake. And then the other person's got his hand on the tail and says, no, it's short and skinny like a snake. The other person's got his hands around the legs and says, it's like a trunk. And everybody's just looking at a different piece of the whole, but nobody has any kind of idea how anything goes together or how it fits. So modern philosophy is just absolutely discouraging if you are a believer and you're coming from a, from a positive viewpoint, uh, from a unified biblical viewpoint. And the reason I'm getting into this is because what we have to understand is the, this whole idea of causation. History and how you understand history is going to undergird how you understand law, how you understand politics, and how you understand economics, and a lot of other things. But I just picked those three for examples. After an election year, these are, these are big issues in everybody's mind still. So history and your philosophy of history undergirds your view of law, politics, and economics. The problem is most of you never were educated in any, any of this because we all grew up in a secular education system. And the other problem is, is that most people have never been taught how to think this way. And so as soon as you start talking about it, half of you are going, oh, what time is it? When are we going to be done? I'm ready to fall asleep. 
because you immediately think that somehow philosophy has to do with something that's nebulous and ethereal and it's out there and I'm more concerned with practical everyday things. And that's like saying, okay, I want to play baseball and I want to get to third base without going to first base or second base. Now, let me give you an example. Let's start with, uh, let's start with law. We're going to elect someone to Congress. Okay, and part of the reason we're going to send a representative to Congress is that they're going to pass laws. Well, what is, what's their ultimate concept of what a law is? Does a law reflect absolute right and wrong? Well, where does that concept of absolute come from? Does it come from something inside the circle, which would be society and the people? In other words, majority determines what's right and wrong. See, that's sort of a flaw in democracy. Majority doesn't determine what's right and wrong. You can have the majority can be wrong, and the majority can vote and say that homosexuality is moral. That doesn't make it moral. So when you have legislation that relates to marriage, is that legislation going to be informed by a morality system, a view of values that comes from inside the circle, that is inside creation, or is it going to come from something outside creation? This is why we have this culture war going on, because as Christians, and I'm using that term in a broad sense, that is those who hold to a basic biblical or theistic worldview, as Christians we believe that God defines reality, and therefore absolutes exist not because they're derived experimentally or socially or by virtue of majority vote, but because there is a God... And he is not silent. He has spoken. And this is why unbelievers hate the fact that, you, that, that, that Christian fundamentalists believe that the Bible is the very word of God because they can't stand the fact that God has spoken because if there is a God and if he speaks, he speaks definitively and absolutely. So you elect somebody and they go to Congress and they're going to decide on legislation What's, what are their ultimate views uh, of legislation? And if you're going to study legislation or a particular problem, what's involved in that? You have to look at the history of the problem. Well, how are you going to put that within an overall view of history? See, whether he's thought it through or not, he is applying a philosophy of history to his analysis of the problem and a solution, which is law. So even though most people don't realize that everybody's a philosopher, whether you've either got a well-thought-out philosophy or a poorly-thought-out philosophy, everybody's a philosopher, and everybody's a theologian. Some people are bad theologians. Some people are good theologians. It just depends on how well you think things through in terms of the Bible. So you have a, a legislator, and he's got to make... Uh, legislation, what's going to inform that? Well, it's also going to have something to do with his view of politics. Politics being defined as the social relationship, social arrangements related to how man is governed. How are a group of people going to be governed? Who is in authority? Who has the power? Who determines right, right and wrong? And there's all kinds of different uh, political frameworks that have been utilized down through history. You have uh, monarchists, you have anarchists, you have socialists, Marxists, you have republicans in the classic sense of being in favor of a republic, 
I'm not talking about a political party. You have those who hold to democracy, and I don't mean Democrats. I mean those who hold to classic democracy. You have all kinds of different views. Well, if you are going to have a political theory, have you as a believer taken the time to study the Mosaic Law to understand its implications for law and government? Because God is the king, and he is legislating to man through the Mosaic Law how the social structures should work in Israel. And since the law is holy and perfect, we know that it's a perfect model. doesn't mean that it should be used as a, as a governing document for any other nation, but it is a perfect model for that. Uh, you see, as you study, if you're going to develop a biblical view of politics and government, you have to do an analysis of the book of Judges. In Judges, you have the extreme view, almost to the border of anarchy, where there's no centralized government. You just have the 12 tribes operating in autonomy, and the, the, the theme of Judges is there was no king in the land, no central authority. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So you see that if you put too much emphasis on the people with no central authority, it's all going to fall apart. And it's always going to fall apart because man is sinful. Then if you go to the other extreme where you have a strong central government, there's a warning given by God in 1 Samuel 7, which is a key political document, one of the most important political statements in all of Scripture. A political statement where the Jews want to have a king like all the other nations. And God says, well, if you get a king, he's going to draft your sons and daughters into the military and into civil service, and he's going to raise your taxes and all of these other things. You're going to lose a lot of freedoms if you have a king like all the other nations because that's the way it works. So if you're going to develop a, a view of politics or government, you better do a lot of analysis in Exodus, Judges, and, and Samuel or you won't have a biblical view of government. You may have a, a Jeffersonian view of government or a Hamiltonian view of government. You may have a view of government influenced by John Locke, but you're not going to have a biblical view of government. And as a Christian, we have to operate from the framework of Scriptures and not from some human philosophy. Then you get same thing happens when you get into economics. You, we have... Um, Alan Greenspan's the chairman of the Fed, and he's going to make a lot of economic decisions that impact us. What's his framework for thinking about economics? Or is economics just something that happens totally within the framework of this circle, where you're, you've built all of your understanding of financial laws on just on pure empiricism? Well, if you have, what, what about God? Doesn't God get involved? See, what we're saying as Christians is that God interferes in the circle. And ultimate causation doesn't happen in the circle. And if you operate on pure empiricism or rationalism, which is what all these systems do, and you approach law and legislation and politics and government from a pure empirical or rationalistic framework, you've excluded God. Because your, your view of history is going to be one where all causation happens within history. It's either economic or it's political or it's military, whatever it may be. But the Bible says God interferes. He interferes in your life personally because he wants you to be a mature believer. He interferes in the life of a church. And if you are growing, then there will be blessing. If you're not growing, there won't be blessing. Let me show you what I mean. Turn with me to... Deuteronomy chapter 28. 
If you've got a background in law or economics or history, I want you to think about various things that, that, that are causative. Right now, we're, I just heard a report this afternoon that Greenspan thought that interest rates would have gone up a little faster and uh, we're, we're beginning to see some uh, uh, inflation, things of that nature. And so the thought is completely oriented to causation in his, in, within history, within human actions. Now, in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, we have the outline to Israel of the blessings that God would give them if they were obedient and discipline that God would bring upon them if they were disobedient. And I just want to briefly hit the first few verses just to make a point. God says to them, Now it shall come to pass if you diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. What's the issue here? The issue is obedience in the spiritual realm. If you obey the Lord your God and to observe carefully all his commandments, which I command you today. Now, what were those commandments? Those commandments certainly involved the civil laws that were included within the Mosaic law, but they also involved all of the ceremonial laws, all the ritual laws related to sacrifice and the spiritual life of the nation. If you observe all these commandments, this is what God's going to do. All these blessings shall come upon you and overtake you because you obey the voice of the Lord your God. See, you don't get into anything here on the Chicago School of Economics or Austrian School of Economics or Socialism or Marxism. It doesn't matter what your economic theory is. If you do what I tell you to do, then there's going to be blessing. Blessing, blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the country. You won't have an urban blight problem if you just obey me. You won't have a problem with farmers leaving and trying to figure out how to subsidize farmers and all of this if you just obey me. Verse 4, blessed shall be the fruit of your body, the produce of your ground, and the increase of your herd. See, this is in an agricultural society, this is economic prosperity. See, when was the last time you picked up Economics 101 and said, you know, the major causative factor in whether or not you're going to have economic prosperity is your relationship to God? See, what the Bible is saying is God interferes because ultimate causation is not inside the circle in terms of economic factors, in terms of certain social factors. They are as they relate to obedience to God. But what matters is God's plan and purposes for human history. And those revolve around two things in history. One is his plan and purposes for Israel the Abrahamic covenant. Those who bless Israel, I will bless. Those who curse Israel, I will curse. It doesn't matter how good your economic theory is or your political theory is. If you're anti-Semitic, it's not going to work. God's going to judge you. And on the other hand, it doesn't matter how sloppy you may be. If you're obedient to the Lord and Christians are growing to spiritual maturity, guess what? God's going to bless you. This is the factor that's, that it, we have to be careful of when we're looking at the events around us in history. We look at politics, law, whatever. Ultimate, it, the ultimate issue has to do with the spiritual life of the, of the believer. And see, with, with these seven churches in Asia, when they failed, there was judgment on that, that part of the world. Even though the Eastern Empire continued for many centuries, it was a, under uh, economic duress. We have to realize, that, first of all, that believers are the products of their own decisions. That's those three imperative verbs, remember, repent, and do. 
it goes back to, to the first divine institution, which is individual responsibility, but as a divine institution, it's for believer and unbeliever alike. But it is intensified in the life of the believer. So believers and their churches, the congregation as a whole, West Houston Bible Church, is a product of the individual decisions made by we, the people here. Second principle, as goes the believer, so goes the nation. Something you've heard many, many times. It goes again and again and again throughout Scripture. When you have believers advancing in spiritual maturity, God is going to bless and prosper the nation. Third, believers who fail to take every thought captive for Christ, and that's what I've been talking about, is that Christianity isn't just about learning how to live the spiritual life. It affects how you think about law, economics, literature, music, visual arts, dramatic arts, everything. And as a believer, we're to take every thought captive for Christ, not just those related to your spiritual life, but everything, whatever field you're in. Even if you're a ditch digger, you need to think about ditch digging within a biblical framework. Even if you you work just cleaning up trash, you're to think about that within a biblical framework. But believers who fail to do this and opt for superficial, self-oriented, shallow theologies, which is where we are in our nation, doom their nation to failure. That's what was happening in Ephesus. These believers had reached a high, high water mark in their spiritual maturity, but then they had regressed, and they had opted for compromise in their spiritual life to just maintain a low level of spirituality. Most Christians get very satisfied if they just you know, get a little bit of maturity. You know, they're, they're, they're happy if they get to second or third grade. Very few Christians have a vision for getting out of high school and going into un- university as a spiritually mature adult. They just want to stay in their diapers. And when they do that, they doom their nation to destruction. Next time we'll come back and start at, at verse 6. The challenge for us individually from... This one verse, 2-5, is that this is incumbent on every believer. We have to remember continuously, don't become complacent in your spiritual life. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that it's just information. I know a lot of doctrine. I know I, my doctrinal notebooks are filled. It's not it. It's putting it into practice, advancing to spiritual maturity, thinking consistently about everything in your life, doctrinally pushing yourself to learn, to grow, to expand in your understanding of the impact of the Word of God on everything in your life, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your Word this evening, to be challenged by the things that we find here, to recognize that there is a reality of your interference and discipline in our lives, but also that there is grace. And grace is most clearly exemplified by the love you demonstrated at the cross by sending your Son to die there on our behalf as our spiritual substitute to pay the penalty for our sins. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this evening that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain, that they would take this opportunity to put their trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross for all of our sins. There's no sin that we could commit that he didn't pay the price for. So all we're left to do is simply to trust him, to believe, 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. At the instant that you believe, you have eternal life, and that can never be taken from you. Now, Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.